I'm Mick Garrison. Welcome back to the fun size edition of Postmortem AMA, where you can ask me anything and to ask your questions of me. Producer Joe Russo is with me. And hello, Joe. We are back from the dead and hopefully better than ever. Hello, Mick. Boy, it's been a long time since we've done this. I know. Even though we have to do it virtually, it's still like, I've missed you, Joe. I've missed you too, and it's I've missed I've missed uh, the questions, and we have we have really good questions this week uh, because we're going to talk specifically about your movie, which is celebrating its thirtieth anniversary this month, mm-hmm. Psycho for the Beginning. Yeah, now that's a, that's a controversial movie in its time, and uh, not that many people have seen it, but something that I'm I'm very proud of. You know, I, I think I think with time, though, it's been very you know very kind to this movie. There's a lot of people who really enjoy it, and uh, we have some really great questions. So should yeah. we should we get into it? Do you have any Do you have any macro thoughts? I guess before I start hammering you and with questions. No, we may as well do it uh, in the answers to the questions. I can horn in anything I think specifically should be touched on. Well, let's start with not a question but an appraisal. Rick writes, if you ask me, Psycho 4 set the bar pretty damn high for anyone that wants to further explore Norman and Norma Bates' relationship. And I got to tell you, we have lots of comments that came in just saying how much people love this movie. And I, over my Halloween marathoning of horror movies, I watched watched all of them uh, to prepare for this interview. Um, And... I got to tell you, I think it's the best sequel. Well, I uh, thank you. And thank you to uh, the listeners who, who posted such. Um, what's really gratifying is that so did Anthony Perkins. And Tony had directed number three, which was not well received at the box office or by critics. Mm. And ours was made for Showtime, although it played in some other countries overseas theatrically. But um, after we shot the film, I had my director's cut finished and we screened it for him in the Alfred Hitchcock Theater on the Universal lot. Wow. And at the end of it, he could not stop going on and on for like after 10 minutes of him telling me how wonderful he thought it was and by far the best of his of the sequels including his own i was so embarrassed i said please tony stop thank you but stop <laughs> and and i have a wonderful note from steven spielberg who who wrote to me to say what a wonderful job he thought it was and how great henry thomas was in it and you know it was very gratifying but it was made for Showtime, so at that time in particular, Showtime was a pretty tiny network, and not that many people saw it. So we thought it was kind of win-win. If you saw it on Showtime and liked it and told your friends, great. And if you saw it on Showtime and didn't like it, nobody would know the difference. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, so, let, so let's get into that a little bit. So obviously because Psycho 3 was not as well-received, it kind of put this sequel to be on track to be a made-for-television movie. Um, right. You came in as a as a director for hire. You were not involved in the initial conception of the idea. That's right. So so Joe so Joe Stefano wrote the script. Right. Who wrote the script for the original Psycho, based on the book by Robert Block? Right. And so 
when you came, the project had already been sold and set up to sh- at Showtime, correct? Well, it was an in-house production for Universal's division called MTE, which was rather than their broadcast network shows, they were shows specifically developed for cable. Got it. So did they approach Joe to write it or did Joe pitch it or how did, do you know what, do you know kind of what the origin was? No, it it was an origin, Ned Nall. It was his idea. He was an executive at MTV, the division of Universal, that he also was responsible for the reboot of Leave it to Beaver back in the 80s. So for TBS, yeah. Anyway, a really good guy. Um, And I created She Wolf of London with Tom McLaughlin for him and for MTE. So they had this idea of, of doing a sequel. Uh, a psycho, a psyquel, a, psycho. <laughs> <laughs> a prequel sequel to Psycho. And they went to Joe Stefano, who had written the original and hadn't written, had anything to do with two or three. Um, and so he wrote something that basically ignores two and three. Mm. And because I had worked with MTE and Universal on She-Wolf of London and some other things, uh, they recommended me, John Landis recommended me to MTE and to Tony Perkins. So um, I had a lunch with Tony Perkins where we literally went over every page of the script together. Uh, and, you know, he wanted to do Psycho 4, but Universal didn't want him to. And they wanted to hire the director of Critters 2. <laughs> you know, Perkins had worked with Alfred Hitchcock and Orson Welles and William Wyler and all of the great directors of that era. And Derek. Yes. <laughs> so, <laughs> so suddenly, um, wait, the studio wants to hire Mick Garris, the guy who directed Critters 2, instead of me, the guy who's been uh, Norman Bates in all three of these movies. So... But he agreed. We had a really great meeting, and he approved me, and it went on from there. So, so with the studio, uh, they had they they had seen Critters too. I assume at that point. I assume, but I, I don't know for sure. So it was so it was more from developing and having a great experience on She Wolf of London. Well, and but, I had I had also done amazing stories for right. Universal and Amblin, and there had written Batteries Not Included. So they knew me as a, a writer and director. Got it. Got it. So so was there? So they so they made an offer to you. It wasn't necessarily like you went in and pitched on it, or how how did that kind of happen? Well. Uh, I'd worked with Ned. He liked the work we'd done together. And Ned was also close with John Landis, who had done Dream On for MTE as well. Uh, And so both of them were enthusiastic about me doing it. And so, yeah, I did not have to pitch. Uh, Everything was ready to go. And I was the right director at the right time. And, And, you know, I was a little bit nervous about doing it because you know, Alfred Hitchcock, but in a way it was so long after it was 30 years Mm -hmm. after the original psycho. And yes, this week psycho four celebrates its 30th anniversary. Well, psycho celebrates its 60th anniversary, but there was psycho two in the eighties, early eighties. And then there was psycho three and not being successful. So we felt there was enough removed from it that we could make an original movie that paid its debt to the original Psycho and took off from there and respected it and continued the story uh, and, and moving forward in that regard. 
So, uh, and this this actually leads into the next question. Then um, it's quite a quite a name. Suck Ass Express, right? <laughs> oh, great! Yeah, yeah. this is going to be a serious question. <laughs> no, actually, it is. Uh, okay. how, how much did you collaborate with Joe Stefano? Uh, was, was the script locked? I guess is the question. The script was written, but it wasn't locked. You know, anytime a director comes on board, if he is committed to the project and passionate about it, he's going to have some thoughts and, and potential changes. There were a few things that I added to it and made some some dialogue changes that I thought would be a little more comfortable in the characters' mouths and the like. But it was a very, very good script. But I wanted to do things visually that, that told the story, like having the present day Norman Bates remembering the funeral of his his uh, father and having him in the scene as well, having them appear in their own uh, memories and flashbacks and the like in a dramatic way. And to use color in a super saturated sense, the opposite of Psycho being in black and white, because I think our memories and particularly the flashbacks and the prequel segments are oversaturated colors, technicolor kind of color, because I think our memories are more colorful than our present day. A lot of times you'll see, you know, monotone flashbacks to historical times where you take out the color. And I did the reverse of that. And, and some choices along those lines that, uh, that weren't scripted that, that I felt added to what we were trying to, to achieve. So did you do those rewrites yourself or did Joe Stefano do them in conjunction with you? I did a few of them. I did some tweaks and the like, but things we discussed, there were not any major uh, rewriting issues. They were all basically tweaks and adjustments and refinements here and there that you find anytime somebody comes on board to make a movie. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, As see, you might know. I, I uh, <laughs> uh, oh, oh, do I? Uh, <laughs> um, we haven't, we, we, but during our absence, we completely uh, missed a, a release of one of those movies where I, I know that pain very well. Yes, um, indeed. So, uh, Richard Humphreys asks, uh, it's a two-parter, um, were you nervous about directing a sequel um, as your previous feature film debut, Critters 2, was also a sequel? And was there ever any concern about doing a TV movie uh, that it might hurt your theatrical career at all? Well, in fact, it did uh, in a certain way. It didn't hurt it. It just redirected it. I was concerned because not only had I done Critters 2, but I'd also written The Fly 2, and now along comes Psycho 4. I didn't want to be a guy who only made movies with numbers in the title. But the fact was we were making it for Showtime, so we were making it like a theatrical film, even though it was in the 16 by 9 format instead of 185 to 1. Um it was very theatrical. There was no censorship that you would have on normal television because it was pay, pay TV instead of broadcast TV. And the script was able to go further in that regard than Alfred Hitchcock was able to because of the standards of 1960 theatrical releases. We could go further than he did and be even more unfettered in it. So it wasn't really a concern about being locked in television jail. That really was when The Stand was first offered me uh, three years later. I thought, God, uh, am I only going to be doing television? Then I realized 
this is the stand. I'd much rather be doing high-end television than low-end features. And uh, so that wasn't so much a concern, and it was a positive in in the regard that it was Showtime. Well, and it it also opened the door for Sleepwalkers, right? Because wasn't this the this is the movie that got Stephen King's attention? Exactly. When they were pitching directors to Stephen King for Sleepwalkers, he had director approval. And so he saw Psycho 4. And like he said at the time, this is so much better than I expected any movie with a number four in the title to be. And so that was what began our relationship. Speaking of numbers in the titles, I I am curious because obviously this was conceived to be a direct sequel to the original Psycho. But um, you know, two and three are obviously out there, and I I feel you can watch all four movies, and they they work in conjunction with one another. I think. Um, yeah. Do do you did you, were you mindful of that, or did, were you mindful of two and three, and did you did you want to make sure that they they could all work as a cohesive unit? Well, when Joe wrote the script. Um, he totally ignored two and three. And I, I thought that was probably a good plan, because, especially because three did not go over very well. And there were a lot of purists who really had a lot of trouble with number three. I think it's a really good movie on its own terms, but it sort of veers into camp territory in ways that I wanted to avoid, which made for some long discussions with Tony Perkins. Right. And that's the only kind of discussions you can have with could have. <laughs> Mm-hmm. We'll, we'll get into that. Don't worry. Yeah. Yeah. I, I'm not worried. <laughs> I have no doubt about that. Um, but two is a really great movie and really fits in with the world of, of, uh, that had been set up by Robert Block and Joe Stefano. Yeah. I, when I revisited two a couple weeks ago, I, I forgot how good two was. Uh, Yeah, Richard Franklin was a terrific Australian director who came here, and he was quite the Hitchcock uh, expert. He really knew his Hitchcock movies in and out and and was a film school guy, and and that was the basis of his passion for movies. And Tom wrote some really, really great – Tom Holland wrote some some really great twists. I mean, there's some really brilliant twists in that movie. Well, I'll tell you, I was doing publicity at Universal when they made Psycho 2, and they would not distribute the last three pages of the script to anyone in the cast and crew wow. until shoot until shooting day. Oh, that's cool. That's and including movie. the publicity department, the script I got said, sorry, but we're not giving you the last three pages. <laughs> <laughs> that's really that's really neat. Yeah. Uh, okay. Chris Cook asks. Were you concerned about the risk of reducing suspense by revealing Norman's backstory? Uh, I think what he's trying to ask, just to give it some context in my mind, is, you know, Michael Myers was so scary in the original Halloween, and then in the sequels, when Laurie became his sister, it was less it could happen to you. So I guess that maybe the question really means, by learning more about Norman and where his psychosis comes from, were you ever concerned that that would diminish the, uh, the the scariness of Norman Bates? Well, where do you go after three movies? You know, uh, I, I think a backstory is important. And I think that's some of the strongest elements in the movie is when we go back in time with Henry Thomas and, and Olivia Hussey. Um, it was never a concern. I never even thought about that. 
Um, but it really is the only reason to do a psycho four would be to investigate how Norman became Norman. We've seen Norman be Norman in the present day in three consecutive movies. Mm -hmm. And so the way he became that I thought was fascinating and really terrifying. And there were ways you could create fear by inspecting how he got there with his mother, who was so bipolar and such an amazing character and, and really brought to life so well by Olivia Hussey, that that is the movie, is what were the seeds of insanity and violence that were planted in this young boy who became a rather uh, off-kilter adult. Well, and I, and I think as far as a Mick Garris psycho sequel goes. I don't know, but I think it speaks to what you would want to do because you love to deepen the horror and go into the emotional, you know, of, of the horror to, to enrich in it. And I think that's, that's what this did. I don't, I think you would have been less interested in, and I think we would be less interested in a more straightforward slasher Norman Bates Mick Garrett's movie. Yeah, I, I don't think anybody wanted that. And least of all, Tony Perkins. Right. You know, he was all about character too and and delving into that past. And, and he gave, you know, Henry Thomas would talk to him off the set and get information about what Tony thought had happened. And, and you know, it was pretty, pretty fascinating stuff. Um, and yeah, that is, I didn't have a choice because the script was already there. I could Put, have some input into it, but I wasn't going to change direction of something that had been greenlit and was something that was really good in the first place. And I was fortunate that, yes, it did go internal as well as external. And, and that, to me, is what's fascinating as well as the twisted sexuality of it, too, which was something you don't do in the Spielberg world <laughs> no, that, I, that I had graduated from. Yeah. That is true. You know, and, and it's also something to say, too, that uh, sometimes if you do have a greenlit project and you change the script too much, sometimes it can become a dead project. Uh, well, that's what happened on Sleepwalkers. Um, before they hired me, they hired another director and he started rewriting Stephen King's Sleepwalkers written by Stephen King. <laughs> and it went in vastly different directions. And they ended up saying, you know, I think maybe we better part ways. And they came back to me because of the respect I had for King's script. And part of my work was to rewrite it and put King back in King's Sleepwalkers. London B asks, do you remember what the budget was and how much freedom did you have with Showtime as the director? Uh, the budget was $4 million, the same budget as Critters 2. And uh, total freedom. Never had uh, any interference by them. They were, of course, involved in the casting process, but there's nobody that I would have rather cast than who we got. Um, there Again, it was paid TV, so there was no standards and practices issue. It was like we were making an R-rated movie, and uh, they were completely supportive of it. It was four six-day weeks of shooting in Orlando, when they were right before they opened the Orlando Universal theme park. In fact, they opened while we were shooting the movie, about halfway through the movie. So oh, we were wow. shooting we're shooting in June and July. I think our last day of shooting was July 3rd in 1990, and then it played on Showtime in, uh, in November. So 
they were very encouraging, but we were the first movie to actually shoot on the lot there. And we were shooting when it opened and, and people, when I remember one scene where we're shooting outside the Bates house and it's a very emotional and disturbing scene where, where Norma is uh, pounding the carpets and having a, a, just railing out young Norman and 50 feet away, there's a police tape with a hundred tourists watching this take place. (laughs) You know, we were as much a theme park attraction as we were a movie production because Universal Studios wanted a movie to be shooting when they opened the Orlando theme park. And we were the ones chosen for that. Do you, did you ever find that that was a distraction or a challenge while, while shooting? Yes, (laughs) Yes, <laughs> particularly that day. Usually not so much because we were on sound stages. But uh, whenever we were shooting exteriors of the Bates Motel or the house above on the hill, um, then yes, uh, it could be distracting. But fortunately, it was rarely, uh, we rarely shot outside during the daytime and the night exteriors, the park was closed. And the sound stages were great, and you know it, it went it went very well. There were just a couple of days like that. But boy, June in Orlando—that <laughs> yep, that's uh, that's peak humidity there. Yeah, uh, I'm a native uh, Angelino, and I'm used to my dry summers. And boy, when you've got 95 degree humidity and it's 100 degrees while you're shooting in a swamp putting a car into the swamp while young Norman watches as he chews his candy corn. Not a lot of fun and mosquito infested as well. <laughs> uh, Gray Doy asks, whose idea was to cast Henry Thomas? He was incredible in the role. I think he was great too. I would love to take credit for it, but it was our casting director. And um, we, we took a trip to... San Antonio, which is where he lived at the time. And he was 18 years old. And uh, Hilton Green, who was Hitchcock's first AD on the original Psycho and on the TV series, he was the executive producer. And the two of us and uh, Les Mayfield and George Zaloom, the other producers, we all went to San Antonio and met him in a Mexican restaurant there. And he walks in and, oh, my God, he's tall and thin. He's not little Elliot from E.T. the way we knew him. Right. But he was so much a physical type that was so perfect to play young Norman Bates. And then meeting him and getting to know him, it was thrilling. And, of course, he's become one of my favorite actors to work with. I've worked with him two other times on Masters of Horror and Desperation and want to any time that I can. Um, So uh, it was the casting director's idea. And boy, am I happy about that. Did uh, did you ever have any reservations about casting Elliot? Never. No, it was kind of thrilling because here's young adult Elliot and he was, he was not well known as a young adult yet. And, and it was more, much more a gamble for him than for anybody else. Just like in, in chocolate, not many actors would take on some of the things that he was required to do, but he's a very brave and incredibly talented and really smart actor. And, you know, it was it was the first time we were able to work together, and I, I can't wait to do it again. And he's just a really good guy. Well, too. and he he continues to seek out challenging roles. I mean, not only has he 
appeared as Norman Bates now. He's he's also appeared as Jack Torrance. That's uh, right. Yeah. He's, the, he's the only actor crazy enough to try and directly be in a sequel to <laughs> Shining. Uh, That's true. So so no, he's he's he is pretty it is pretty incredible. Uh on, on that note, I guess uh just to continue that train of thought, Mr. Martoto writes uh, did you realize how much trauma you would cause an entire generation by casting Juliet and Elliot in a murderously <laughs> incestuous mother-son relationship? Well, I didn't realize, but I'm glad it did. <laughs> you want your movie to have an impact. Yeah. yeah. Well, Olivia Hussey, when she was 15 years old, she was Juliet in, in Zeffirelli's Romeo and Juliet. And when we met her, everybody fell in love with her. You know, she was probably just about to turn, I think she was 39 when she did the part and just stunningly beautiful. And there's an exotic kind of distant quality to her that made her a really mysterious uh, choice to play the bipolar uh, Norma Bates and a really wonderful actress, you know, British trained, classically trained uh, actress who came out of doing Shakespeare and the like and here doing something that is an American Gothic. I mean, she really, you know, we talked about her accent and the like. She said, you know, I, I don't think I'm very good at, a, at an American accent. And I said, speak the way you speak. It's perfect. You know, it, it just deepens the exotic quality of who you are. And she was just amazing. She you know, she had uh, issues with traveling, being away from home and the like. She's a little bit agoraphobic. So it was it was rough on her, but she was just great. And everybody loved working with her. I agree. And I think the, the pattern of speak and the rhythm of her speak made it so, it was so unique that it really gave the character extra dimension. Yeah, um, there's a formality to it mm-hmm. that, that, you know, it, makes for kind of a rigid personality and a demanding personality on a young son who doesn't understand what's going on within his body. And when she says, you know, pat me with the orange flower water, please, Norman. And it's like, whoa, where are, where are we going with this? Yeah. Paul Ward asks, how many of the original psycho crew worked on part four? Um, none of them other than Hilton Green. It was 30 years later. Most of them had been retired. A lot of them had passed away. But uh, uh, other than Anthony Perkins and, and Hilton, I don't think uh, any of the original people were there. However, the production design, we rebuilt the Psycho House and the motel and the interiors and everything from the original blueprints. And we even had all of the set dressing for the Psycho House we had the bed that Norma Bates used in the original Psycho, and it was insured for $100,000. So um, a lot of what the original team did was left over. I even have some of the candy corn bags that were printed from the original plates from Psycho. So so there was a a lot there. Only a true Psycho would eat candy corn regularly. (laughs) That's right. I didn't eat the candy, just the yeah. bags. <laughs> uh, another another kind of production-based question. Jay Thomas asks, uh, how much of the work was soundstage versus location? Um, and I guess another, I guess a subsequent question I would have off of that is, Critters 2 was mostly location, so was this your first time doing a lot of soundstage work? 
Um, you know, I had worked on amazing stories and been around the sound stages a lot and worked on the sound stages uh, for Life on Death Row. Most of that was on stage. Um, but uh, every time you go inside any building in Psycho 4, you're on a sound stage. The exterior of the Bates House, the Bates Motel, the swamp, all of those were practical locations. Well, uh, on the Universal lot built exteriors. Um, and, and so that was a lot of fun, but mostly there's so much more control on a sound stage, and yet you can get cabin fever if you're in a sound stage too long, but this was a four week shoot. There was no time to get tired of anything. We were constantly sprinting. Yeah. Josh Ellis writes, I read somewhere that Anthony Perkins was the most difficult actor you've ever worked with. What made him difficult? Let's not say difficult. Let's say challenging because, you know, it's a very different thing. Difficult is when you're a pain in the ass on purpose. Right. But, you know, Tony wanted to direct Psycho 4. And I've talked about this before, but he wanted to direct Psycho 4 and the studio didn't want him to. And so here's this kid. As I said, I had done Critters 2 and that was my one feature um, that was a flop and was, you know, a puppet movie. So to somebody like Tony Perkins, who was a very um, educated and intelligent man who was a writer and director himself of of great repute, Um, he had written with Stephen Sondheim, uh, The Last of Sheila, which is a brilliant screenplay back from the 70s. So he knew Norman Bates more than anybody did. I'm sure there was a little resentment that somebody with so little experience was going to be directing him and this movie. And he was testing me a lot. I think he wanted to know that I wanted to do more than just cool shots. But like I said about the issue of talking about camp, we were about to do this scene. And you know, we with him, we didn't want to rehearse the scene before we actually played it, other than setting our marks and locations and and things that were going to happen. The mechanics of it, we would run through, but the performance as usual would be saved for when you're doing the scene. And so we talked about Norman and I said, you know, I I really don't want to veer into the area of camp. And suddenly everything skidded to a halt and he said, camp, camp. What do you mean by this word camp? And it literally led to a 45-minute conversation on the set while uh, the crew is twiddling their thumbs and waiting to be able to do their work. Wow. So that would happen more than once. And, you know, we're about to do a scene, uh, you know, where Norman gets angry and plunges a, this was scripted and we talked it over before, plunges a butcher knife into the butcher board in front of him. And he suddenly says, well, don't you think this is kind of old and hoary and a cliche and a trope that's been done and done and done? And it was, you know, well, let's talk about this. And oh boy, did he talk about it. And it went on and on for literally a half hour. And before I said, let's take it off the stage, let everybody finish doing all their setup and lighting and the like, and let's decide on something that works together that makes both of us happy. And we came up with the idea of taking that apple and he's so furious, he just twists it in half. And that's something you've not seen before. It's better than a butcher knife into a butcher board. Yep. 
and the collaboration of the two of us taking it off the stage and talking about it, his problem with it being a cliche led to a much better and more visual idea. So it was good and it was valuable. And I was being tested as somebody who'd never worked with a movie star before. Yeah. So it was something I really appreciate. At the time, it was frustrating as hell. Um, and it was very difficult for me. Um, but it was very instructive and very valuable to me as a young filmmaker. I learned a lot from him. And again, it paid off when we showed him the film and he was so enthusiastic for it. As the shoot went on, did you start to anticipate things where he might have an issue that would cause for one of these conversations? And, and did you kind of start trying in your head to come up with potential solutions to solve? Yeah, I can't give you any specific examples because it is 30 years ago. But, um, but yeah, I, I definitely learned who he was and better how to deal with it. You know, when you're a director, you're part psychologist. Mm -hmm. And you know this, you you need to learn on day one how somebody likes to work. And do they like encouragement? Do they want to get ideas? Do they have it locked in mind? And a guy who's played Norman Bates three times before certainly has very strong opinions about who that character is. So you, you basically adapt to how you best work. You work with different uh, actors in different ways. And that's part of the job. And if you're going to do it well, you really need to be perceptive and understand that and learn very quickly. It is amazing how by the end of the show, you feel like you finally hit your rhythm with someone and then it's over. You're done. Yeah. <laughs> Yay, rap party. <laughs> uh, Jay Thomas asks, how did John Landis end up in the movie and what was it like directing one of your friends? <laughs> well, it's always fun to direct one of your friends, although John is one of those guys. You don't want to give him too much direction because he'll argue <laughs> with a sense of humor. No, with a sense of humor. Okay. He, he likes to give you shit. Sure. Well, yeah. Um, I know that. It, yeah. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> well, it, it was really great. He was partially responsible for me getting that job. And he was friends with Tony and he was at that lunch where we met and where we discussed it all. And he was really somebody who pushed it forward. And I love the idea of having filmmakers play small parts in movies if they can handle it. But having friends, it's a great thing. You know, he and my wife, Cynthia, both played together in those scenes. She's taking the calls on the radio talk show that CCH Pounder is doing. And John is the producer of the show. And they were trapped in a radio studio the whole time they were there. It's only a few days, but sure. it was really fun. And it's always great to be able to have your friends around when when you're shooting. Because I've said this on the show before, but directors don't get to work together. Direct, and so you're rarely on somebody else's set unless it's as a visit. But if you work with them in this way there's a bond that's built that's even stronger and there's a communication that's already there that you don't necessarily have with a first day on the set of an actor you've never worked with before. And I got to say, he's, he's great as like, it's just, it's really good casting him. <laughs> yeah. Well, I wouldn't have cast him otherwise. No, I know. I mean, it's not like you fuck him in and he sticks out like a sore thumb. Like he really blends into that role. Uh, yeah. It's, yeah. it's anyway. Um, 
Okay, so our, our, our last two questions kind of go hand in hand. Uh, so I guess I'll, I'll kind of ask them in, in one. Uh, they come from Wick27 and Jason R. Lloyd. Uh, Wick says, my question has to do with the final shot of the rocking chair, which creeped me out good back in the day. I figured that was there for sequel potential. Was this moment part of the script or more of a studio request to keep it open-ended? And Jason asks, in your mind, what happened to Norman's child and where did they end up after Psycho 4? Uh, where would you have gone if there was ever another sequel? I always thought this would be the end to it. The open ending is not for another sequel, but it's for you to project upon. It's for the audience to project. I want there to be a panoply of ideas and thoughts about the direction it goes. The rocking chair was not scripted. I thought it was a visual that would work well. And the cry of the baby was not scripted either. That was something that we put in as well. So you know that baby got born and there's a future ahead for it. But God, I don't want to see the son of Norman Bates. <laughs> you know, that's a movie I really don't care to see. I think we really had an opportunity to do something. That, you know, by the time you're on number four, I'm usually not interested. Uh, usually by three, I'm out. But, <laughs> but by the time you reach number four, there are exceptions, of course, but few and far between. But I think we had a really valid story to tell here told by the writer of the original movie. Mm -hmm. And any further than that, there, there, there's a direction, just like the Bates Motel series. I thought it was fascinating, but they did everything they could to take it away from the mythos of both the Hitchcock movie and the sequels that followed. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, it, it tended to go in so, so for, far afield that it wasn't really anything to do with Psycho anymore. Right. And they just created their own uh, uh, mythos. Reason, which is a jumping point for their own thing. Uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. They, they did it uh, on their own that kind of tended to ignore where it came from, especially they ignored all the sequels as well. So do you think that in, in your mind with the character of Norman Bates, with the house burning down, right? Uh, yeah. Do you is is with the the destruction of the house does that kind of destroy that dark past for him? Is he is he free to move forward in your mind? I would like to think so. I would like to think that Norman has been freed and that his psyche is free. But there's always the the possibility of uh, recidivism, isn't there? <laughs> that's, that's true. Son of son of Norman, oh boy. Yeah. Uh, well, I guess any, any parting thoughts, 30, 30 years and, and the movie has, you know, quite a legacy and it's part of an, an amazing legacy being tied to one of the most lauded and greatest horror films of all time. Uh, what do you think? Absolutely. Well, I could not have been more fortunate at the beginning of a career to be offered the opportunity to read, to tread on this hallowed ground and, we did it respectfully, but we also did it in a way that one, visually did not want to ape its predecessors. We wanted to give it an original and full color uh, palette that that stood on its own and it was its own movie. And I was incredibly lucky. There are so many things that I've done that were not successful when they came out that seem to have found an audience, for whether it's Hocus Pocus to Critters 2 to Psycho 4, things like that, that 
were not well liked or well received in their day that have found their place. And you make movies for now. You don't make them for the future. But fortunately, movies are forever. And especially these days where we have access to everything, it's nice that it's found a home. And I'm very, very fortunate to have had this in the very beginning of my career and to be able to to walk in some mighty big shoes. I, I couldn't agree. And uh, congratulations and, and happy anniversary to Psycho. <laughs> Thank you. <clears throat> thanks. And thanks to the audience. And uh, it's so good to be back here with Postmortem and send your questions to Joe Russo tweets on Twitter. And uh, any of your thoughts and questions, uh, please let us know at uh, Mick Garris PM on Twitter and on Instagram and the Mick Garris, Postmortem with Mick Garris Facebook page. And please review us on Apple Podcasts or any place where you get your podcasts. And we look forward to seeing you next time. Joe, any parting thoughts? Uh, it's good to be back. <laughs> All right. Take care and we'll see you soon. If you're enjoying the podcast, we'd really appreciate it if you would let the world know about it by reviewing and rating it on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. If you have comments or questions for our Ask Mick Anything shows, send them to producer Joe at Joe Russo Tweets or to at Mick Garris PM on Instagram or Twitter or the Postmortem with Mick Garris Facebook page. This is a brand new address, so don't forget it. That's at Mick Garris PM on both Twitter and Instagram. And if you'd like to see my vintage and recent video interviews, making of documentaries, and audiobooks of some of my short stories, go to my website, mickgarrisinterviews.com. Thanks for listening to Postmortem with Mick Garris. Download new episodes every other Wednesday and subscribe on iTunes. <laughs>